from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Wednesday, October 25th, and we've got an amazing show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about building a consultancy and the future of education in America, two topics that I care deeply about. Uh, but first, I want to say happy birthday to my wonderful brother, John. He is 50 <clears throat> years old today. And my beautiful, wonderful mother also had this birthday. She is not with us anymore. Hello, mom in heaven. Happy birthday to you. So first up today, we're going to talk about a fractional COO business and how Bill Simmons built it. It's really interesting. How do you get the word out? How do you let people know? How do you advertise? Because you're not in any particular industry. And so his story, Bill's story is really useful for us to study. And then after that, Michael D. Smith, Dr. Michael D. Smith will be with us talking about how we can fix education in America. We have so many new technologies and we're still doing it the way they did in 1720 and it ain't working. We should have a better way to look at it. Dr. Smith will help. So great show. Appreciate you being with us. And we will be back in just a second to get started. And yes, I answer the emails. The address you're about to get works. Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, we are back and still so very appreciative that you are with us. Very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur who is cool enough helping other entrepreneurs. Please welcome Bill Simmons. He is the founder of Thrive Business Operations. They provide fractional COO services to growing businesses that need some sort of operational help. They have a special system called the Thrive Ops Cycle, which they use to evaluate companies and hopefully find your problems. He's been doing this for about 30 years or so and has spoken in front of 250,000 people. He's so successful because he doesn't spend time taking care of his hair every morning. He's got that <laughs> hair due. Bill, welcome. How you doing? Great, Jim. Thank you for being here, uh, allowing me to be with you today and uh, excited about what you're doing with startups and just a great time and season to be serving entrepreneurs. Yes, it is. All right. So tell me about one of your generic gigs. What does a gig, uh, a fractional COO gig look like? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we started out in 2006 providing uh, 
you know, executive outsourced leadership. And as the years have gone, we've narrowed it in the area of operations. A lot of visionary creating business owners have visions that their business operations can't keep up with. And so that's who we love to serve is being able to build um, the system behind them and the processes behind to be able to keep up with the growth and desire of scaling and uh, taking their business to the vision they have. So, you know, we, we love working with, you know, growing companies that uh, are, are looking to uh, uh, take the next level. All right. So Give me an example of what that company is. We don't need to know names or anything, but what what are they? What industry are they in? How big are they? What's their revenue? Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah. And what's the solution? Boom. Yeah, most of yeah, I like it. Uh, so you know, most of the companies we uh, serve are going to be privately held companies in that five to thirty million dollar range. Normally operated by the founder, maybe second generation leadership. Industries, we're industry agnostic. We often tell our clients, you be the expert in your industry. Let us be the experts in operations. We know people and processes and our Thrive Ops cycle allows us to be a bit agnostic. Um, you know, a, a current client that we're uh, working with right now is, you know, a commercial flooring company that, um, is in that $12 million range. He sees a pathway himself to growth that goes well beyond 20 to maybe even $50 million, but he needs leadership around him to help build a strategy to operate this company in what we call a quarterly sprints. We want to help run your company 90 days at a time so that we are clear on what objectives and priorities uh, to get the right stuff done. We, 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 uh, you know, I would often say that um, we can do anything. We just can't do everything. So part of our strategy of focus of operations is to define what the anythings are on that quarterly basis around people and processes. You mean like the agile sprints? Yeah, I mean, it's mimicked somewhat on that. I think, you know, I've got five, I have five business books sitting on my desk right now that, that all, you know, allude to the same thing of how do we structure and run a company uh, quarterly in 90 days at a time. And our, our focus to, is to be really specific. I think business is a marathon of sprints, and, and those sprints are normally those quarterly 90-day uh, timeframes. And we want to be able to be really clear, to execute at a high level. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get the right stuff done in a court, uh, in a short uh, sprint uh, time format. All right. What's the biggest problem they have, Bill, your clients? If we were to put them into four or five buckets, what are they? Uh, systems? Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what are some of them? I, well, I think first of all, when it comes to the people side, it's around communication and expectations. Um, most business owners are visionaries and creators. They're, they they like to be at that 50,000 foot view. And sometimes people are inspired by that type of communication, but sometimes clear runway expectations uh, get missed by the people around them. So part of our job is to, to, is to really come alongside companies and business owners who are frustrated that both people and processes are not meeting their expectations. So let us help, you know, put the right type of communication and the right type of processes in place uh, to do that. Uh, the other thing is that they just are, 
um, not runway people, right? Uh, the business owner um, is always thinking about what's next and what's uh, and where growth opportunity is. And if they're too busy working in the business, they have a really hard time working on the business. So we want to create a process for them where they are consistently working on the business uh, around what we call the nine functions of a business and really with operations at the center of that to make sure growth and, and success is happening in all the functional areas of your business. Okay. How much does the stage of the business play into this? So I, Bill, I grew a business uh, in the early aughts and we really had a problem at 5 million we hit bumps and at 12 million we hit bumps sure. uh, is that are those numbers standard or is that sort of ring a bell with yeah you? It, it does i think there's you know there, uh, companies have life cycles and stages just like we do as you know people i think you know, we have to recognize our organizations are like organisms and they're growing and they have their challenges of both health and opportunity as you move through that those different stages. You know, when you're in the startup stage, there's a lot of, you know, growth around selling your product, but maybe not as strong of a foundation as putting the right types of, uh, of processes in place for scaling. Uh, sometimes the people who helped you get to that 5 million aren't the people who can tell, help you get to that 12 or 20 million. Uh, doesn't mean that they don't still have a place in the organization, but you have to start thinking about you know, the strategic leadership of your team. And we often help business owners who are maybe thinking about selling in the next couple of years to be able to say, do we have the right kind of leadership team and structure for this organization that makes it appealing to somebody who wants to acquire it? And that just happens at different stages and levels of the company. Walk me through Thrive. Is that the same thing as the Thrive Ops Cycle, the acronym that you have for Thrive, the six elements? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, part of where we, uh, uh, you know, the Thrive Ops cycle, you know, it's, it's all shameless uh, marketing, right? So we, we, you know, as a company, his name is is Thrive. You know, we've kind of marketed our Thrive Ops cycle. We we see five uh, main cycles of running uh, strategic uh, direction in a company through a yearly process, and we, uh, you know, certainly lean on uh, the branding of that. Um, you know, when I look at what a Thrive uh, business is. Um, you know, and what inspires us as a company is that first of all, um, you know, that, that T stands for transformation. We really want to be around companies that are looking for transformation and we want to be a part of their transformational journey, if that makes sense. So making a company a thrive company really makes it uh, transformational. The H is holistic. We want to, you know, we, we want to look at a company in all aspects. It's more than just, are we making money? Because we both know you can make, you can create revenue, but that doesn't mean you're creating profit. You can create profit, but that doesn't mean you have, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the ability um, uh, to have uh, leverage uh, spending. And, and so those things that are, are challenging. So we want to look at a holistic, the people are part of the company. Highly relational is the R. Every, you know, to us, a company that is thriving is highly relational. The I is intentional. We think that 
that that you have purpose and vision and clear aligned direction in your company. Let's be intentional in everything that we do. The V is vibrant. We, we, we want companies that are dynamic and energetic and exciting. And if your company needs a boost of that, uh, we want to bring a boost of that into your company, right? To help bring that energy and excitement with the right kind of leadership. And then the final E is just effective. We, we want to we want to make sure that we're delivering results. So when it, so when Thrive works with you, we want to help your company experience all of those elements of what it really means to thrive as a business. Tell me about your first customer, Bill. How did you make your first check? You know, how do we? You know, it, it was. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a a, a mix of um, miraculous moments and, and and some relationship building, but really, it was me saying, "What if." Um, seeing what I thought was a need and sharing that story with people until somebody said, Hey, I'm interested in doing that. And, you know, one of the clients that, uh, that first allowed me to do that was somebody that I had uh, the ability to mentor a couple of decades, but, uh, before, um, we had joined up together. And as a result of my experience in the past, they thought what I was doing in the present was something that could help them. And they said, man, let's work, let's work together. And so I, I always appreciate those kind of organizations that, uh, that, that value not just the competency that you bring to the table, but your, your, your experience and relationship capital. All right. And then how did that become a consistent process and a standardized, you know, everything yourself? I assume you yeah. have systems of all people. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, you know, uh, you know, Jim. In the beginning, it was the Bill Simmons show. You know, I was a single shingle or the solopreneur that was selling my service and delivering my service. And I saw over time what was my vision for a firm model to be able to productize the way we deliver the service, so that other fractional CROs could be a part of our team and us service different types of companies around the country. And you know, I met a lot of people who were very competent but didn't have the system on how to deliver the service. And so as a result of my experience, I just learned and I leaned in on those learnings, started seeing my own patterns and how we delivered uh, in, in order to get the kind of results that we were getting with our comp with our clients. And so that's what we've now allowed, you know, been able to present to our team to be able to be consistent how we deliver the service. And all that's a result of just, you know, paying attention to the patterns as we were serving clients. What kinds of patterns do you mean? Like, for example, what became the yeah. ops cycle? Exactly. Like, you know, we, 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 we learned very quickly, you know, that, you know, to break it down in 90 day uh, quarterly sprints, that, that strategy for us was really kind of a, you know, it's more of a business operating system. There's different versions of that. I always say it's like McDonald's and Burger King, right? Both sell hamburgers, but one's a Big Mac and one uh, is a Whopper. You know, we, our op cycle is kind of our version of a business operating system. And as we just, you know, recognize, you know, where we started off every engagement with a strategy advance, we, we ended up with certain types of results. When we compromised on that process, it always leaned towards frustration and, and a miscommunication of expectations. And so we built the op cycle out of our best practices in serving a client as a COL. How long does it take to properly engage, solve, and leave? Yeah, you know, our average engagement is 12 to 18 months, uh, and it's for a variety of reasons. 
Um, you know, if the best thing we can do is work ourselves out of a job. I saw, you know, we want to serve people and solve problems. So if we solve the right kind of problems, then we're able to set up a company for success to bring maybe somebody in on a more permanent basis uh, and, and, and maybe even full time. And so when we're, you know, working through, you know, one quarter at a time, we always ask companies to make a commitment to the process. Yes, you're making a commitment uh, to us to serve you. But you know, if we can look at minimum have a 12 month commitment together to work through four quarters together you know our, our guarantee is we're just going to get the right stuff done and and we're going to see engagement and we're going to see execution at a high level how do you price a project and how do you deal with any kickback on the price negotiations with the price how do you price yeah, that's a great question. And the secret sauce is really simple. I don't mind sharing. You know, we, we look, we have broken companies down through some research at different uh, levels of revenue. A company at $5 million of annual revenue and what they might use for a COO or a director of operations is only going to be a specific price point. A company that's $30 million is going to be much different. It's a little bit more complex, and but we, we can see what that, that, um, type of you know expense is going to be from uh, uh, having somebody on your team we want to be 50 to 60 percent it's fractional right it's a fraction of the time and it's a fraction of the cost so we know we want to be about 50 to 60 percent of what a potential full-time coo would be uh, on uh, your payroll so we know uh, right out the gate we're we're gonna one save you money and number two we're gonna we believe that through the op cycle and through our intentional process Processes, we're actually going to get more done for less. So we're confident about that savings. And so it's really simple. You know, the average COO, according to uh, you know, Indeed, is, is base salary around 150000 By the time you talk cost of employment, bonuses, it's well over a $200,000 engagement. We're going to easily be at, at 15 to 60% of that, depending on the needs of the company. And is there any pushback that you get? Or how do people... You explain it that bluntly. How do you communicate yeah, that? With yeah, you know, we, we we actually, you know, I mean, it's it's not always right out the gate in the first thirty minutes, right? We, we want to uh, you know, start you know, focusing on what the the vision and needs are of the company and how we we are hopefully able to serve them. But we we are able to take the mystery out. There's not a whole lot for us to have to go back and say, oh well, let us scope this out. That, you know, we, we, we're going to install the op cycle. We know what that takes. Time's built into that uh, for rolling up the sleeves and, and, and on the execution side with your team. So we're pretty confident after the years that we've done this to be able to make it very clear. You know, pushback, you know, there's always pushback on a couple of things. One, I, I, it certainly cost is, is there, but I think we can make our case that we're, we're an affordable option compared to hiring somebody full time. Number two is just the mystery of it, right? Man, I've never done this before. I've heard about fractional CFOs. I'm hearing about a lot of CMOs on the marketing side these days. How does operations work and how does it work fractionally? So there's a little bit of, you know, that learning this relatively new way um, to to bring operations into your company at a high level. Everybody's used One of the things I learned about pricing bill i think is that if i can justify it to myself then it's easier to sell it to somebody else and the very first business i started bill was a summer camp business we 
Started off with two locations and grew to 89 locations. We were at MIT and Stanford and UCLA and SMU and Emory and places like that. And the very first year, you know, based on what all my expenses were and the profit margin I wanted, I remember distinctly that that it was $496 a week for a commuter. And I don't know if you have kids, but summer camp is 150 bucks a week. And we were going to charge $500 a week. Uh, and so I felt guilty about it. I also didn't think that I could sell it. And then I realized that's, I don't know, 56 times eight or something like that. Turned out that it was the number of hours that we could easily show times eight. When I was like, well, you know, would you pay $8 an hour for babysitting? What about babysitting at MIT and learning HTML at the same time? Would you pay eight bucks an hour for that? And once I could justify it to myself, it was really easy to sell and almost yeah. no one asked about it then either. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think pricing for any product or service, it, it becomes a mystery when you're starting out. Um, and you know, there's certainly, you know, research that you can help, you know, in the, in the beginning, you know, we were using different types of models that, you know, I had investigated when, it, you know, kind of, even though, you know, I boast, hey, we're, 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 we, we provide fractional COO services. We recognize it's a professional services model. It's a consulting type model. And, and we, we looked at that. But, you know, over time, we, we were able to mature. We had some HR specialists who were a part of our business function team. And we just started investigating and saying, you know, what, what are we up against when it comes to a full-time COO and what does it look like from a fractional to interim perspective and how can we uh, clearly present the comparison and the difference. Now, honestly, I don't think that's the number one selling point that makes a final decision. I think that's helpful for comparison purposes. At the end of the day, it's the results that we believe are going to come from um, being a part of the execution of your team, that's really the value, but you, but pricing has to be dealt with. Right. And, and so our thing is take the mystery out and don't, you know, it's not, I shouldn't have to end a call and say, let me get back to you in three days and figure out what the, what the pricing is going to be. We should be able to make that decision pretty quickly. Yeah. I hate it when they say that, or let me go talk to my boss and see what I can do for you. <laughs> no, 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 we're going to be right up. And, and sometimes, you know, we'll get a lead coming through in, in philosophy, Jim, that, you know, the company is under that 5 million. You know, our, what we think of our ideal client is at five to 30 million. You know, we might get that company that's 2 million, 3 million. And the idea of the kind of retainer we're looking at may be a little you know, it will stretch them quite a bit. And so we've learned how to provide other products and services for them, but it's not about lowering the price to meet that market. Really, we got to make sure that we're in the right market for the kind of pricing that we're trying to deliver. And I think it's a good lesson for no matter what um, product or service you're trying to deliver to the, to the world. How do you market yourself? Yeah, we're shameless marketers. You know, we're a lot of relationship building. Uh, you know, we have uh, through the years uh, been able to, um, you know, leverage LinkedIn a good bit. Very intentional, rather than just you know, um, you know, we've got a method to the madness. Um, you know, we've 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 done a lot of Google uh, ads through the years, and really paying attention to that. We've just moved more intentionally into the SEO game. Uh, that's not something that we've done a lot in the past, but. Primarily, it's been, you know, relationship and networking, referral. Uh, this year, the new thing has been, you know, let's be, instead of getting on stages, let's get on podcasts. Let's, 
Let's get in front of people that may not know they could use this as a resource, right? And, uh, you know, I often say people can't use a resource they don't know about. So let's have conversations with people like Jim and let's let their audience hear like, wow, I didn't know that was an option. Maybe I should reach out to Bill. And so, you know, those are our, our big things, uh, you know, networking relationship, uh, Google between pay-per-click and SEO, uh, SEO and in um, our intentional uh, outreach on LinkedIn. Those, those are our three primary methods at the moment and what do you consider a good ratio on the efforts how do you kpi that yeah um you know you know our our effort is you know it's really about appointment setting at the end of the day uh what what um each particular um you know, channel is per se. Um, are we paying attention to not only the efforts it takes to be on that channel, but what are the number of appointments that they are generating for us? And so once we, you know, kind of keep track of that, and then it's a matter of, you know, the, the standard sales, you know, you know, we had the appointment, how many proposals, how many close, you know, we're kind of working through that process on our stage uh, as well. We recently actually just hired, a, I didn't mention, we actually hired our first inside salesperson uh, this summer, uh, who is, you know, through phone calls of former prospects and, and some list building that we've done uh, through the years uh, and making that effort to where I'm not the primary salesperson anymore, right? Somebody else is able to do that. And so we're, we're also learning to, you know, where are the, you know, now adding to that, how many calls do we need to make to get that appointment? And so you start, you know, you start paying attention to activities and results. Yes. And what do you do when a engagement goes badly? Have you ever had a situation where for some reason it just doesn't go well? You know, we're pretty proud that we haven't had a lot of drama that way. Right. But you know, we'd be lying to say that there haven't been some challenges, especially since I've been, you know, I, I started doing this in 2006 when it was just me. Uh, you know, the, the, there have been the, the, the scenario where the business owner and one of our fractional COOs just didn't seem to jive. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty proud to say that's only happened once but when that happened one of the benefits of working with us is if you hire somebody and you take that we've all hired the person that we thought was going to be a good fit and found out that they weren't but now that's all back on you to start that entire process over if we've worked through you and we've developed the the plan and strategy the the priorities for execution we don't have to start that entire process over again. We're just going to make sure we plug in another person and just get a better personality match. Uh, so we learned through that, that that's actually a benefit that we can bring to the table through that loss. Uh, and, and then there's other times where, you know, Hey, revenue just changes for a company and, you know, they have to make decisions and we may or may not, you know, stay as a part of that uh, engagement much longer, but uh, those are very rare and few and far between. Right. How do you tell an entrepreneur that he's wrong, that she is wrong on one of their basic core beliefs? You know, uh, I had been in opera business for, I don't know, five or six years, Bill, and I made uh, a decision to hire my brother right out of MBA school. Boy, did he have <laughs> a lot of ideas about how stupid I was. And yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of it was me saying, we tried that or Dude, that's going core to the one thing I've learned not to mess with or 
I don't think my parents would like that. You know, I, you know, how do you handle telling the CEO that she's the problem? Yeah. So I think uh, it's a couple of ways. First of all, you, 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 as much as the client is hiring us, we're making a decision on who we want to work with. Right. And so I often say you can't help somebody who knows it all. And um, we have to get ahead of that and not be so desperate for business that we take on bad clients, right? So we, we want to make sure that we're working for people that can that are open to that conversation so that when they have a blind spot, we're, we're bold enough to be able to speak into it. And, you know, certainly there's just, that's just good communication skill. But if we can't have open and honest conversation with you, it's probably not going to be a good fit for us to work together. And so it's, it's on us as a company uh, to try to catch that red flag in advance. And when, and when there is a blind spot, to just be able to honest and say, I hear what you're saying. Maybe it's, you know, let me show you another perspective. Let's, let's work through that. But you can't stick your head in the sand. You have to, I, I actually hate conflict. People think I love conflict, but I run to it because if we don't address uh, ch those challenges right away, they'll derail us down the road. So we have to address things and we, we just can't be in a relationship with somebody we're scared to be honest. I love it. That's a great way to sum it up and we better move on from there bill great conversation and very impressed with what you are doing uh why don't you go ahead and move though and come on down 150 miles and come to a real city like atlanta and <laughs> well my business partner is actually in marietta so i, I was okay. just in atlanta last week yeah yeah so uh, yeah we're but yeah we're serving clients all over you know geography is uh, not a limitation for us they have these things called airplanes yeah man Bill, how do we find out more? Get in touch, follow online. Yeah, so, uh, you know, website is thrivebusinessoperations.com. Uh, right there, you can get all kinds of resources. We have ample videos that kind of walk into our model. It tells a lot about our team, thrivebusinessoperations.com. Just about on any social media platform, you can go to Bill Simmons Live, L-I-V-E. Uh, primarily jump on LinkedIn and find us there, but if you want to, you want to, you want us on Instagram or Facebook. It's the same thing. Bill Simmons live and uh, we're happy to connect. Thank you so much. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jim. And we'll be right back in a second. We're going to talk about the abundant university and why college is just so broken. We'll be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and again, thank you so much for being with us today. You know, one of my favorite topics is for-profit education. And I started off in education entrepreneurship and have been just really active in that space. And I always want to bring you those guests that are thinking about education and how we can make it better because it is failing in our country at every level. That's the one thing we don't discriminate on. We fail at every level. 
Dr. Michael D. Smith is with us. He is professor of information technology and marketing at Carnegie Mellon University. He has a new book out that maybe will help provide some direction. It is called The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Jim, thanks for having me on the show. I'm doing real well. Does this all come down to the size of the classrooms? This all comes down to, I think, our ability in higher education to recognize that what we're doing is financially unsustainable and it's morally unsustainable and we can't, we can't correct those problems from within the existing scarce classroom. Why is scarcity a factor in all of this? And talk to me about how that plays in. Say if you wanted to take a class from a famous author at Princeton. Exactly. So this is this is how I motivate the the issue in um, in the preface to the book. Uh, for a long time, Joyce Carol Oates, who is a famous uh, uh, professor at Princeton, taught ten students a semester. She did she did an incredibly good job, but ten students a semester is a small number. Now you can take her class on Masterclass. Um, will you learn exactly what you'd learn at Princeton? No, but you'll you'll learn a lot and you'll get access to her. Um, I would love for us in higher education to get excited about how can we use technology today to get our expertise out to a larger number of people than can receive it on campus at a much lower price than what they'd have to pay on campus. But they got master class, problem solved. Well, that's that's a that's a great point. So a lot of the education ed tech that um, that we have is premised on the idea of get the knowledge out there um, at a low price and that'll solve all the world's problems. What I'm trying to argue in the book is that the thing we haven't solved yet is the value of the credential. So you can take as many edX or Coursera or, or masterclass classes as you want. It's not going to add up to the value of the four year traditional elite selective higher education degree. Um, I would love for society to start to solve that problem and allow people to who have the knowledge to signal that knowledge to employers in ways that don't require four years and a quarter of a million dollars. All right. What are some of the solutions you talk about in the book? Um, I mean, one of the big solutions I talk about in the book, it comes from employers. I think employers are going to have to start de-emphasizing the four-year the four-year degree in their hiring practice. So, so when I talk about this to academic audiences, I've got a slide that has a whole bunch of um, headlines from from different articles, both on the right and the left, saying employers are de-emphasizing the four-year higher degree. The next build of the slide has quotes from each of those articles saying, "And they're doing it because they want a more diverse workforce." And they've realized they're never going to get the diversity that they want if they rely on traditional colleges and universities. Um, and I think the punchline is, you know, a lot of the evil capitalists, quote unquote, um, are further ahead in terms of diversity and equity than we are on college campuses. How so? Oh, I think I think they they want a diverse workforce. They recognize the value of a diverse workforce. Um, and they're willing to create new ways of creating that diverse workforce. I worry that we in higher education are still stuck in the same system 
that we know gives access to, you know, disproportionately gives access to rich kids and excludes, excludes poor kids. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is a study by Raj Chetty at Harvard University that shows that if you're a kid born into a family in the top 1% of income, you've got a one in four chance of getting access to a highly selective university. If you're a kid born in the bottom 20% of income, you've got a one in 300 chance of getting access to the same university. Um, that can't be the right way to allocate access to the scarce, the scarce resource of higher education. So why don't we just have all of the universities offer online degrees? Problem solved. Problem solved, except, I mean, one of the things I, I try to document in the book is that a lot of, a lot of people across higher education, a lot of faculty members across higher education are desperately opposed to offering classes online. We don't want online degrees because we're worried it's going to cannibalize our existing product. Um, and what I'm trying to say is shame on us, you know, shame on us for not allowing kids who have the skills, but might not have a quarter of a million dollars in four years of time to develop those skills, not allowing those people to have access to, to our degrees. Shame on us for dragging our feet. So I think there's a certain group, Michael, who says, you know what? I don't want my kids going to these universities because you're spending more on uh, rock climbing walls than you should be. And you have a disproportionate number of staff who don't teach. And you have a lot of professors that don't teach that all they do is research proving what we already knew or is something that's not true in the first place, you know, and the hell with all of you. I hope you go out of business. Yeah, there's so a, I think there's a lot of anger towards higher education out in the world. What's fascinating to me is that we within the ivory tower don't feel it. Um, so, uh, this summer Gallup did a poll and what it showed is that over the last nine years, the number of the proportion of people who have a high trust in higher education has dropped by 20%. Um, that our, our, our trust numbers are, are in the toilet. Um, when you talk about that on campus, we've got all sorts of convenient reasons to believe that a, that's not an accurate reflection and, and B, it's not really a problem anyway, because students seem to be showing up in, in as many numbers as they were. So I think to a certain extent, we in higher education are blind to the problem. Um, I would love for us to get back to our core mission. You know, our core mission shouldn't be helping rich kids get a leg up in the job market. Our, our core mission ought to be making access to knowledge and credentialing as wide, you know, widely available to anyone who has the skills to, to benefit from it. We're not able to do that from within our existing system. Let's try to come up with a new system. Well, here, here's an idea, Michael. Why doesn't CMU offer a degree in... Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say HTML. Um, what's the P program? Python. You offer a degree in Python and for $400, if I pass the test, 
I get a Carnegie Mellon bachelor degree in Python and it's a new profit center for Carnegie Mellon and a thousand people take the test every year and now you're making extra money. It's, it's interesting, right? A, it's kind of already been done. Um, so there are a whole bunch of classes on edX that for, you know, a, a relatively low amount of money will give you a certificate in, in Python. Um, and I think we're starting to see more and more, um, employers saying, I'm less concerned about where you graduated from. And I'm more concerned about, do you have the skills, be it Python or, um, or even writing, you know, the problem for a traditional elite school like Carnegie Mellon is that that really doesn't fit into our business model. You know, the sort of offering small, small credentials really doesn't fit into our business model. Our business model is all about the residential experience and all about, you know, four years and, and a whole lot of money to get, to get the big degree. Um, I'm hoping that we as a society create an alternative for students who, you know, don't have the time or the money to get the traditional four-year degree, but certainly have the talent to contribute to society. Right. Well, so what's stopping it then? Just university inertia? I mean, that excuse, it doesn't fit the business model. Michael, that's a bad excuse. You know, if that were, if we were at uh, Bain Consulting, that would not be an acceptable bullet point, you know? Change the model. That's what we're here for is to come up with a new model. You know, the business school should gladly help the IT department put together something because that's what we do. We build stuff. You know, what? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's such an indictment. Who's preventing it? Is it the, well, I'll stop. Who's preventing it? I think it's a combination of we're, we're perfectly happy with the existing system, right? And we're very stuck in the existing system. And the existing system has benefited us for a long time. Um, so I think part of it is just organizational inertia. And then I think part of it is honestly um, the, you know, employer, as long as employers don't, don't change how they hire, um, students are going to continue. We're, we're going to continue to be the gatekeepers for access to the professional workforce. And as long as we're the gatekeepers for access to the professional workforce, students are going to keep showing up and, and needing to pay for our pricey degrees. So on one hand, I think we in the academy need to take a hard look at ourselves. Um, but on the other hand, I think employers need to, need to take a hard look at their hiring practices and say, do I really need the four-year degree as a signal for whether this person is qualified or not? And I think more and more employers are saying, no, I don't. Um, I'll give you, you know, the, the, there are a whole bunch of, work, of, of examples in the tech world. Um, to me, one of, the, one of the most interesting examples is a, a buddy of mine's a journalist. And what he said is, I don't hire writers anymore unless I can, unless I can see their substack, right? Unless I can see your writing. Um, I'm not all that, I'm a lot interested in, did you graduate from Columbia's journalism school? I want to see, can you actually write? And we've got, we've got a whole bunch of places now where you can show your skills that doesn't require the traditional four-year degree. Let's start hiring based on this. Yes. Well, it seems kind of an obvious decision to us entrepreneurs. We don't care where you went, you know, we don't care what your grades are either. Um, 
those are totally irrelevant. Yeah, my son is in his early 20s and is out in the job market and is doing incredibly well. And I told him to put uh, graduated college with zero debt as the top line <laughs> of his resume. And he did, and he got 50 comments on that. People who didn't want to hire him commented on that. You're laughing, Michael. Why are you? What are your thoughts? Oh, no, I think, I think that's fabulous, right? Um, what, you know, what we, I, th I think it's fabulous that you graduate from college with, with zero debt. Um, but I think there are also, there are a whole bunch of kids who, you know, who can't do that. Um, and that's tragically, you know, that, that's tragically unfair. And we in, we in higher education ought to be ashamed of that. Well, I want to make sure I make this clear. Uh, we paid for some, I was say we paid for less than 10%. The rest of it was Let's, through him getting scholarships him getting wrestling scholarships and him working during the summers. Yeah. That's huge, right? And it and it signals a lot about his, you know, um, uh, I don't know, go go get it, go get uh, you know, drive, um, uh, discipline, all those wonderful things. Here's an interesting way to think about it. The university degree used to be a signal of quality, kind of like kind of like a brand name. Um, that if you didn't have a university degree, you're probably not that smart, not that you know, not that motivated. Uh, what have you. Um, I wonder whether online education might become a signal of you're an incredibly disciplined, incredibly hardworking person, uh, you know, might, might become its own signal in the workforce and might even replace the four-year college degree. If you, if you got a four-year college degree, it's probably the case that your parents were really wealthy and were able to pay for it. But what I really want to know is, are you driven and motivated? Um, and if you got an online degree, maybe that's a signal of that. Well, in the entrepreneur world, we really don't care. I, I joked, I told someone. <laughs> well, and that's great, right? I mean, you're, you're using different signals to evaluate someone's quality than, than the four-year four college degree. That's what we want to be doing, I think. I think so. I, I told one person who asked, you know, do you care about when I went to school? I was like, yeah, I care a lot because it shows who you might know that I can cash in on, you know, <laughs> you know who, Oh, you know, someone there, I need a connection there. And that's the only reason, um, and I don't care about your grades either. So the, the story that came to mind, Michael, while you were talking is my son was out trying to get his first job and, you know, I was playing dad, maybe sometimes too much. And he called one day and I always get mad about his wrestling ears, you know, cabbage ears that the wrestlers sure. get. And he said that he was at a, a job fair and he noticed that two people were following him. He finally turned around and approached and said, what's going on? And they said, well, our CEO was a big time wrestler. And he tells us to always nice. look for wrestlers because they're tenacious, hardworking people who get up at five in the morning to go run before class. And we see your ears and we're wondering if you were a wrestler and he got that job. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's a different signal, right? Uh, you know, it's a different signal than I got into Harvard and graduated from Harvard. Um, it's, you know, something else I can rely on. I, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the, one of the examples I talk in the book about is, 
uh, a guy named Gilberto Titaretz, who was covered in Wire Ma- Wired magazine. And um, he was, he graduated from a middling, you know, engineering college in Brazil, worked for the Brazilian state oil company. And in the evenings, he liked to solve data analytics challenges on, on a web, on a platform called Kaggle. And he was good enough that he rose to the top of the Kaggle, uh, worldwide leaderboard. Um, and all of a sudden he was getting job offers from Silicon Valley companies, not because of his university, not because of his degree, not because of the GPA, but because they could see this guy is a really good data analyst um, because he's at the top of the Kaggle leaderboard. I'd love to develop a whole bunch more ways like that, that people who are smart but just don't have access to the four-year degree can signal their intelligence and their, and their motivation to, to employers. So, Michael, why don't you get uh, one of your friends from MIT? You went to some school called MIT. I don't know. Cambridge? <laughs> I've never heard of such a place. Uh, get a MIT guy and a, a Stanford friend and you know a, a board of 50 famous professors and create the universal achievement standard where you people certify that this person deserves the equivalent of uh, a brand name school degree. And you guys create that as a a business model, a for-profit thing. And then you go to IBM and they have them put in a million dollars and Coke puts in a million dollars and you run ads on TV talking about that. This is the equivalent and you have a Stanford professor talking about, that and then a mitt professor and you know uh and we create another standard you get some of your professor friends together and put it together and i'll go out and run it that would that would be a fascinating way of going going about it right um i i think we're starting to get that at at some not at not at mit or at stanford oh is that is you supposed to say mit that how that's yeah, that's the way. That's the way you pronounce it. Ah, I learn something every day. <laughs> well, here's here's the fascinating thing to me, right? MIT and Harvard created MITx and HarvardX, where they did, you know, they did their their education online. Um, and I think you can make a pretty strong case that a that was an incredibly smart way to respond to the disruption. We're going to keep our on campus degrees, and we're going to have this online. Um, you know, online option for students. Why didn't it work? It didn't work because I think the faculty, and I think I can, do, you know, I, I document this to a certain extent in the book, the faculty got in the way because the faculty didn't want online cannibalizing the, the pricey residential degrees. So I think we, the faculty, aren't necessarily in favor of this because we're perfectly comfortable doing what we're doing. Um, okay, you got to have greedy and- faculty out there that you could go to and say, look, if you participate, you get 2% ownership in the company, you know, you're going to be in ads and hopefully this will, hopefully will make you a million dollars when you're 70, you know, yeah. go to their greedy side and what's wrong with that? Well, I think, I think the innovation we are seeing is, is in employers, right? I mean, you look at the certificates that Amazon and Google offer, for things like AWS and and their own Python, um, you know that I th- I think what what fascinates me is we are seeing the innovation in the for profit world. 
uh, particularly among employers. And we're not really seeing the innovation in, in higher education because we're perfectly happy with, with what we're doing today. And we'll continue to be perfectly happy until we... Barbarians I throw think, you out of the gates. Well, until we, until we rediscover our mission is, is, is the argument I'm trying to make in, in the book. Um, why, you know, we, we talk about disruption. Um, why was the entertainment industry, where I've done most of my research, why was the entertainment industry able to respond to the technological disruption they faced? I think it was because they rediscovered their mission. Like, when, if you look at the entertainment industry, they initially opposed technological change because they rightly saw it as a threat to their business model. Um, but at some point, they realized, my mission is different than my model. My, my mission isn't selling shiny plastic discs for 20 bucks a pop. My mission is creating great entertainment and getting that entertainment in front of an audience. And that mission is so important to me, I'm willing to blow up my whole business model to pursue it. What's the parallel for higher education? What's our mission? Again, I'll say if our mission is, you know, helping rich kids get a leg up in the job market, we're doing great, but that's not our mission. Our mission is creating, you know, abundant access to, uh, to, to classes so that as many people as possible can discover their talents, develop those talents and use those talents to the benefit of society. Our current model isn't, is failing us. I would love to see us get some energy behind. I'm so passionate about the mission of getting education out there, regardless of what zip, you know, regardless of what income bracket you grew up in. Um, I want to get, I want to give you access to this. I'm, I'm so passionate about that, that I'm willing to blow up the existing model so I can pursue that mission. The book is The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. It's five-star rated on that Amazon thing. Michael D. Smith, you can find him on LinkedIn. Michael, how else would you like us to reach out, find out more about you? Uh, you, can, you can reach out. Uh, the, like I said, the book, the book is up there. An audio book will be up there real soon. Um, I've got a website that, uh, that Jim, I'll, I'll give to you where you, can, where you can read other things about the book. And I would, you know, I'd, I'd love for people to engage in the argument and, and let's, as a society, get passionate about creating alternatives for kids who today are left out of the process. Very good. I love it. Thank you so much, sir, uh, Dr. Smith, for being with us. And I hope the book continues to sell well. Jim, I appreciate it. Thank you. And we will be right. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We're out of time. But we are back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and go make a million dollars. Bye now. Oh, 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 oh,